Luke chapter 6. If you're visiting this morning, you don't have your Bible with you, we'll put the scriptures up on the big screen. We've spent a lot of time in Luke chapter 6 looking at the Sermon on the Plain, as it's called. Jesus went up to a high, flat place. You're probably more familiar with what's called the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. These are two different versions of a very similar sermon. And as I've been saying all along, I believe Jesus preached a version of the sermon probably many times as he ministered in and around Galilee, the northern region of Israel. And we need to take our time with the sermon because it's the Lord, his first real public address, his first sermon. And I don't know if you've noticed, but it's not like any other sermon that you would normally hear at church. You think about today, you've heard so many messages about Jesus' death and resurrection and the eternal life found in placing your faith in Jesus Christ death and resurrection, and we're at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, or the Sermon on the Plain, and no mention that his death and resurrection is coming. And if I preached too many sermons in a row without mentioning the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd have some phone calls, or probably people up here. Where is Christ? We came to hear about his glorious death and resurrection. Where's the invitation to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior? And we understand that this is coming and that he is priming the pump, so to speak. He's getting Israel ready to understand what his death and resurrection would mean. But even when he starts talking about his death and resurrection, people don't understand. And they're shocked after it happens even though he warned them and explained to them. If we look closely at the Sermon on the Plain, though, we will see the gospel in it. And I'll help you see the gospel in the Sermon on the Plain this morning. And I also want to help you to understand the way that we need to reach the world with the gospel. I know probably most of us at some time or another have taken some kind of training on how to present the gospel, so we can evangelize. And we make sure we hit the points that God created everything and that He's perfect and He's holy, but we're not. We're created in His image, but we've fallen into sin, and that sin separates us from God. And Jesus came to live the perfect life we could not, died on the cross, taking our punishment on Himself, and we get credited his perfect life to our account. He gets credited to his account, our sinful life, and God declares us righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he begins to change us from the inside out into the image of Christ. And eventually, when he calls us home, he'll glorify us and we'll be made perfect in heaven. And this indeed is the gospel, and you need to hit those points when you're sharing with people. But most people you're going to find aren't ready for you to just jump into the gospel presentation I just gave you. In fact, it would be very unnatural. They have 
issues in their life. They have problems. They have confusion. And you're going to win an audience to preach the gospel into their life by the way you love and the way you listen and the way you walk with them and care about them. And we can see in the Sermon on the Plain, on a group level, Jesus meeting people where they're at and then taking them from where they're at to where they need to be. So where are these people at, so to speak? Why is this crowd gathering? These are Galileans. They're, they're the second, third class citizens of Israel. They don't live down in Jerusalem. They're not the Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, scribes, elders, rich, elite. These, uh, the equivalent would be, these are the flyover state folks. That's what the coastal elites call people living in the breadbasket of America, we just fly over them as we're going from New York to Hollywood. God forbid you'd have to stop somewhere for too long for a layover. And these folks thought they had no hope of salvation because the religious leaders were teaching that the proof of God's blessing on you is a life of prosperity and happiness. That you had to keep God's law perfectly, especially the Sabbath law. And for people who are extremely poor and earn their living day by day to take an entire day off work to keep the Sabbath law, the Sabbath no longer became restful, it became a burden. Not only that, but you had to start days in advance preparing for the Sabbath to make sure you kept all the Sabbath laws. These people were being crushed under the heavy burden of the expectations being placed upon them by the religious leaders. Add to that the fact that Israel was being oppressed by Rome... So you have Rome taxing Israel and then Israel taxing its own people and all that money was being funneled into Herod's building projects down in the south. And you got a recipe for some pretty angry people waiting to hear somebody preach some hope. And so Jesus starts his sermon with this illogical revelation. Illogical in the sense that when you tell a crowd of people that the truly happy people in this world are the ones who are poor and hungry and oppressed, that doesn't seem to make any sense at all. But it certainly will get their attention because they're like, well, that's us. He's preaching to us. I'm intrigued. I think I'll listen to this guy. I was saying first service in the in the movie Forrest Gump when he's uh, he's jogging and he jogging and jogging and people are following him and finally he stops and turns around and they go shh he's gonna say something I mean think about it Jesus has been performing all these miracles and healing people miraculously and. He's got this crowd and they all came to see healings. But if all he did was just keep healing and healing and healing and healing, what would be the point? 
And so now he gets up to a place where you know he's going to speak and everyone's like, shh, he's going to say something. What's he going to say? And Forrest Gump says, I'm tired, gone home. And everyone's disappointed because you realize they weren't following him for the jogging. They thought maybe he had the keys of wisdom to what is the meaning of life. And that whole movie is a postmodern movie about there's only questions, no answers, and we'll find meaning in just asking the questions. But Jesus came to give answers. And the meaning, and I think we all know this deep down, that there's no peace to be found in just asking questions. We want answers. And we want the right answers. And a guy who can perform miracles starts his sermon with, hey, the people who say they're happy and blessed by God, I don't think they are. I think there's more to life. In fact, there is more to life. And in fact, the blessed people are actually the ones who are poor and hungry and oppressed for my namesake. That's, that's a big key. For my namesake. You're not just automatically blessed because you're poor. And then he has this warning to those who are taking confidence in their wealth and their riches. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. I like the way the NLT puts it, the New Living Translation. What sorrow awaits you who are rich, for you have your only happiness now. You got your best life now. And then that's it. You wanted heaven on earth. And you may have forfeited heaven in heaven. So he's got their attention, and I assume he's got your attention, and you need to figure out how to get the attention of the people that you are going to witness to. And so maybe it's somebody at work who's angry that they got passed over for promotion and a raise, and you could say, why did you want that raise? Where, did you think there'd be more happiness from the raise or from the pride of that title? And you could say, maybe happiness isn't to be found in money or titles. And they would probably say, yeah, 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 of course we all know that. And you might say, well then why don't we live that way? And on goes the converse. Let me tell you about a sermon Jesus preached once, or a message Jesus gave once. And so you're looking for these opportunities, and that was Jesus' opportunity to grab the attention of the Galileans. And so now he's got them on the hook, and they're intrigued, and they're thinking, hey, this, this guy, uh, he's promising happiness and blessedness. So how do we get it? And instead of what the prosperity gospel preachers are offering the world, he gives them an impossible obligation. So an illogical 
revelation to get their attention, and then he backs it up with this impossible obligation. Here's what you need to do to be happy and blessed. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. I wonder how many people left after that part of the sermon. That's not what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear, Let's, this guy's going to get even with our enemies. It's our turn to be the wealthy and the powerful But that's not what Jesus offers. Who can really live this way? I can't live this way consistently. Can you? It's just not in me. It's not in my natural state. My natural condition does not want to live this way. And we see more of this in the Sermon on the Mount. If You don't need to turn there. Look on the screen. Matthew 5.19 Jesus says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So he's not saying, hey, the Pharisees are wrong. You don't need to live according to the law. He's not saying that at all. He says, whoever does them, the the law, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But that's the thing. You need to not only teach them, you need to do them. And the Pharisees weren't doing them. They were hypocrites. They would say one thing and then do another. And they would make up their own laws that were easier for them to keep than the actual law of God. And Jesus says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he starts the sermon with this hope And quickly transitions to, yeah, you're never getting in. The way the Pharisees have been teaching you. And the people who desire heaven more than anything else, they're going to stick around and hear what he has to say. But I'm sure some people left after this. Or maybe just before they left, he offered them the reward, and that kept them. You have to understand when you're witnessing to people and helping them to see their need for Christ as a sinner, don't forget to let them know what the reward is. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of of the Most High. For He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. This is an incomparable compensation. Nobody is offering this. You will be sons of the Most High. You will be children of God. He will call you son or daughter. You will have that kind of relationship with God. This is what Jesus is offering. The Pharisees were just offering a ticket into heaven. Jesus is offering relationship. The most intimate of all relationship, parent-child. 
That'll keep people on the hook. Yeah, that's what I want. I want relationship with God. In the Sermon on the Mount, it sounds like this, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So not only will you be sons of the Most High, but of course all these things that you need to live here on earth will be added to you. But those aren't the important things. The most important thing is, do you have a relationship with God? Isn't that what you would want more than anything else? Everything else, Jesus says, rust and moth destroy and thieves break in and steal. A few years ago, I finally got a new car after 17 years of driving my Saturn. And I didn't want a new car because that one was fine and I don't have to worry about anyone stealing it. And it had the plastic panels, so but it just wouldn't start reliably, and getting abandoned down in Bakersfield on hospital visits just wasn't working anymore. So we bought the new car, but I was waiting for the first dent just to get it out of the way. But my relationship with God's not like that at all. No one can take him away from me. And... Nothing will tarnish him. And he never disappoints. And my new car's disappointed me. You know, you start to hear rattles. and, and uh, But God doesn't disappoint. And he do, uh, he, he, there's always something new and amazing and fresh you're learning about him. This is what we should want. We do get a sneak preview of the atonement in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.17. Here it is. You're not going to see cross, and you're not going to see I'm going to shed my blood for you. But he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I have come to fulfill them. We can't fulfill them, but he has come to fulfill them. And we know the rest of the story. If we put our faith in him, then we get credited his fulfillment of the law and the prophets. A little foreshadowing there. So an illogical revelation to get you on the hook and then an impossible obligation. Wait, I can't live that way. And yet, he's offering this incomparable compensation. But I want that. So you have this dilemma. I want that more than anything else, and I can't earn it. That's where you need to get people when you're talking to them. Well, can't I just be good enough to go to heaven? What, you want to you go to a place where good enough? That doesn't sound like heaven. Filled with people who just sin some of the time. Really, that's what we're all waiting for? No, we want perfection. But if heaven's only filled with perfect people, how are we going to get there? That's the dilemma. And so Jesus follows this up with 
an unpopular estimation. Here's how you need to esteem yourself. Here's how you need to consider yourself. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? All of this is adding up to tell us you need God's forgiveness. You are not perfect. You're not even close to perfect. In fact, you've got this big honking log of sin sticking out of your eye. But you don't notice it because you're so busy comparing yourself to other people and you're focusing on their sin to make you feel righteous. Like Jesus telling the story about the Pharisee at the temple saying, oh, thank you, God, I'm not like this tax collector over here. Thank you that I'm righteous. And the tax collector is beating on his breast and yelling out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, guess which one went home justified? Which one was declared righteous? The one that knew he wasn't right. They were both unrighteous, but only one knew he was unrighteous and needed God's forgiveness. But that's not what the natural man wants to hear. Nobody wants to estimate themselves unrighteous. And you've heard this your whole life, and so it seems foreign to us, but it's taken years for God to change our mind about these things. You go out and start talking to the world, and they will say, I'm a pretty good person. Well, how do you get into heaven if you believe there's a heaven? Well, I think God just kind of looks at your life, and if you did more good than bad, then you're in. I'm not Hitler. I'm not a mass murderer. Boy, they're setting the bar low. So heaven's filled with lots of people who just aren't Hitler. That's where you want to go? It's got to be better than this down here. And that's going to be the sticking point. Do you see yourself as a sinner? Can you say like Paul said in our opening passage from 1 Timothy, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. That doesn't mean he's the worst. He's saying, I'm people exhibit A. You don't need to look any further than Paul to back up this statement. Can you say that with Paul? It is a trustworthy statement that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. You want to see a sinner? Here. Here's one right here. Will they let sinners preach and baptize people? Yes. And they should only let those who admit they're sinners preach and baptize people. Now, Jesus anticipates that the flesh doesn't want to hear this message. And we're so prone to listening to false teachers. The prosperity gospel, the therapeutic gospel, the social gospel, that you can have your best life right now, right here gospel. 
the we're going to get even with all the coastal elites gospel and bring all the prosperity back to the heartland gospel. This, this is the message we want to hear instead of the I must die to myself if I want to find life. I must die to my agenda and follow Christ if I want to have life. I must turn the other cheek. I must love my enemies. And so he gives this unequivocal accusation. And this is not popular in our day and age. This accusation. Hey, those people teaching something else, they're wrong. They're dead wrong. They're blind guides leading the blind. Don't listen to them. I know they're telling you what you want to hear. They're just tickling your ears. Yes, I see the crowds that are following them. But don't mistake a crowd for those who know the truth. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inward, inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Look at the pattern of these teachers' lives. Do you see humility? Do you see compassion for others? Do you see a desire to, for God's name to be glorified? Do you see love, joy, peace that passes all understanding, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, the fruits of the Spirit? So now here comes the altar call. The invitation, we like to say in Baptist circles. So, an unmistakable invitation Jesus says this at the end of the sermon. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You say you believe me, you say you trust me, you say that I'm your Lord, then why do you go and do the opposite? Why do you say chair, chair, but then go sit on the floor? Because you don't trust that the chair will hold you up. Why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and I say, love your enemies, but you're plotting how to get even? I told you that won't bring happiness in life, so why do you keep pursuing that? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. He's talking about judgment day on that day. On that day when we read in the Sermon on the Mount, he uses that phrase, on that day. We know biblically that means judgment day. On that day. But I also believe that our daily lives are in view here as well. People who trust in the Lord and act on His words, you see over time in their lives that there's this 
peace that passes all understanding and they weather the storms of life. They're not budged off of their rock. They continue to praise the name of the Lord, whether he gives or takes away. They continue to be generous in spite of their financial prosperity. They continue to be forgiving and loving and compassionate. And where does that come from? Because that's not normal. That's a heart that's been changed by Jesus Christ. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. He's not saying that the works save you. He's saying that acting on Jesus' words is the evidence that you've truly trusted Jesus. Like James, Jesus' half-brother, preached, faith without works is a dead faith. And so this morning we heard professions of faith, but we made sure we asked the parents, do you see a heart that wants to obey Christ? Not perfectly, Nobody's going to obey Christ perfectly this side of heaven. But do you see a pattern of your children grieving over their sins and wanting to follow Christ and act on His words? We're not just trying to crowbar out a profession of faith from people. You hear these stories about vacation Bible schools where they put two baskets up front and light one on fire and they give them a decision card and they say, go put your decision card in one of the baskets. And of course, everyone puts them in the basket not on fire. And then they say, we had 500 decisions for Christ at VBS. I think you had 500 decisions not to burn up your decision card. And and who knows how many actual decisions for Christ. This is the invitation this morning. Hear his words, recognize they're different than what anyone else is teaching, and contrary to what your own flesh is teaching you, and saying, I'm going to trust this guy. I'm going to trust this guy. And I'm going to live my life accordingly. And he says he's the path to eternal life and happiness and blessedness. And so even though it looks completely different than the rest of the world, I'm going to trust Christ. I'm not only going to call Him Lord, Lord, I'm going to make Him Lord, Lord. Better yet, I'm going to recognize He is Lord, Lord. Jesus is demanding your trust and He's promising great reward. So the question is then, can I trust Jesus? That's where all your conversations will eventually land when you're evangelizing and discipling. Because when you're discipling someone, you're going to hit an issue in their life where they don't want to trust Jesus. Whether it be their marriage or their finances or their parenting or their job situation. And so we're in this process as believers of day by day saying... I trust Jesus and I will live accordingly. Oh, there too? Yes, there too. 
Jesus wants to be Lord of your entire life. And that's where ultimate happiness is going to be found when you surrender everything to Him and trust Him for everything. Well, how do I know He can deliver on these promises? Someone may ask you that when you're sharing Christ. So I have a little list for you this morning to consider. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ. Or maybe you've made a profession of faith in Christ, but you're not really living in obedience to Christ. Because deep down, you believe you know better than Christ the best way to live your life. And he's saying, no, you don't know. I made you. I know the best way for you to live life. And so it comes down to a trust issue. How do I know I can trust Jesus? This isn't a comprehensive list, but this will help. Number one, Jesus taught things nobody else taught. He's not just one more voice in the crowd. He's the only voice in the crowd teaching this. Wait a minute. You're telling me that the way to, to find life and fulfillment is to die. Yes, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Well, that doesn't make any sense. How, how am I going to find my happiness if I'm busy helping other people with their lives? When am I going to get mine? Well, if you keep making your own happiness in your own way, and your own agenda, your, your purpose each morning, you're going to be miserable. And you're never going to find life and you're never going to find happiness and you're going to be eternally separated from God. So he says, those who want to find their life must lose their life for his sake. Nobody else is teaching this. Because we wouldn't listen to anyone else. Door-to-door salesman. Hey, drop everything and follow my agenda. Slam. Not even the politicians are saying this. So that at least ought to get our attention. If, if Jesus really is the Son of God, and if He really knows things that no one else knows, we'd expect Him to teach things no one else teaches. And that is exactly what He has done. Secondly, Jesus performed miracles nobody else did. He backed it up with His power. He had authority over nature. He had authority over the demons. He had authority over sickness. Not like anyone else who claims to be some kind of healer today. I mean, he laid his hands on people and immediately, immediately complete healing. And he didn't even have to lay hands on people. He could just say a word and they'd be healed. He virtually banished illness from Israel for three years. And if these things weren't true about him, then the claims written about him in this word would have quickly been refuted. And certainly, people wouldn't have given their lives for a man who was a phony. Thirdly, Jesus claimed things about himself nobody else claimed. You want to see the Father? Look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. 
Before Abraham was, I am. You know the old saying from Josh McDowell, either Jesus is a lunatic or a liar or he's Lord. And they've added a fourth or he's legend. We've debunked the legend. They don't write fact and history about a historical figure years after they leave the scene. Legends, they make up stories about them long after they've left the scene, so there's no more eyewitnesses around to say, "Uh uh-uh, that's not what happened. We have a historical record of Jesus' life from eyewitnesses. So he's not a legend, and his teaching was way too lucid to be a lunatic, and his life was beautiful and righteous, and at his trial, at the end of his life, they could find no wrong in him, no, no, no lying. In fact, they killed him for telling the truth, for calling himself the Son of God. Number four, Jesus fulfilled prophecy no one else could. His virgin birth, that he was in the line of David, that he would uh, be in the tribe of Judah, that he would be born in Bethlehem, he'd enter on a donkey, he would be pierced for our transgressions, not one bone in his body would be broken, and on and on and on the prophecies go. In fact, statisticians, when they calculate the odds of one person fulfilling all those prophecies, you end up getting a number that mathematicians consider statistically impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Number five, Jesus loved in a way nobody else loved. Anyone else getting up and saying, I am going to deliver happiness, I'm going to fix all your problems, just trust in me. No one has ever died for you to make that happen. Because think about it, anyone who makes that claim, if they die for you, that's it. They don't, they don't get anything now. They're gone. They're gone. So nobody's making that claim. If Bill Gates said, trust in me and I will die for you and bequeath my entire fortune to you, well, that would be amazing. But he's ain't, he ain't going to do that. I know he's supposed to be this great philanthropist and whatnot, but he's still always in the top three richest people in the world. I think he likes his money. And he's not going to die for you. He might give you a grant if you write to his foundation. But he's not dying for you. But Jesus, this guy, died for you while you were still his enemy. He didn't wait for you to befriend him and then die for you. He died for you while you were still an enemy. And he gave you all the treasures in heaven. And he won up the whole Bill Gates proposition I just said. He not only gives you his entire fortune if you put your faith in Jesus, he takes on your entire debt on the cross. Nobody else is offering this. 
And so we want to believe it, but some skeptics may be saying it's just too good to be true. How do I know? How do I really know he can make good on this? Well, he backed it all up by his resurrection. And I know this isn't in the Sermon on the Plain, but we know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey says. We have the rest of the story. He doesn't stay dead. This is how we know that he knows what heaven's really like. He's been there. Oh, I know there's all kinds of books of people who say they've been to heaven and back. You don't need those books. The guy, the prince of heaven, came down, lived, told us these things, died for us, and was raised the third day and appeared to hundreds in the flesh. Thomas, touch the wounds. I'm real. I'm flesh and blood. I'm not a ghost. I'm not an apparition. I'm real. The resurrection is the ultimate proof that you can trust Jesus. We're trusting for eternal life. We should listen to the one guy who conquered death and came back. I was watching a, a video snippet of uh, uh, Ravi Zacharias, you know, this apologist. He's Indian. And he likes to go on college campuses. I love to watch these video segments because these, these college students... They're searching for truth, and then you get ones asking questions that just try to want to show him up in front of everyone. So it's kind of entertaining. And they were asking, you know, all these religions in the world are offering some kind of afterlife. Why should I listen to Christianity? And Ravi says, first of all, you're listening to Jesus. He's a person. He's not a philosophy. And he goes through some of the same proofs that I did, but he closes with the resurrection, and then his partner gets up, uh, another guy on his evangelistic team, and he says, hey, when I was a college student like you, and I was a philosophy major at Harvard, and I was searching for the truth, none of my philosophy professors or my history professors would acknowledge the resurrection. And they couldn't answer this question that he had. And he says, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that... He was buried and he was raised on the third day and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve and after that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now. What does that mean? You know who they are. Go talk to them. Go talk to them. Hear each of their stories. Corroborate their stories. And he would ask his professors, what do you do with that? And they're like, well, that was, that was written long after the fact. And, and it's like, no, we, we have proof that 1 Corinthians was written not too long after Jesus left the earth. These eyewitnesses were still around. Paul can't write this after all these people died and then say they're still alive. He'd be laughed at. Nobody would take him seriously. The whole movement would have been shut down. How do you account for monotheistic Jews suddenly kicking off a religion that says a man came 
and he was God. How do you account for these things? And his professors couldn't account for them at what eventually led him to Christ, the resurrection. He can't explain it away. So even though we don't see it in the Sermon on the Mount, that's where Jesus is going. He's going to get everyone to hear a whole new way of thinking about what eternal life means and what happiness and blessedness means. And he's going to cause quite a stir in Jerusalem. And eventually he knows the question's going to be, how do we know we can trust this guy? How do we know you're not just, you know, blowing smoke? And he knows what they don't know. I'm going to die. I'm going to come back. Nobody's done that before or since. And so this is the man who's asking us to trust him. Not just profess, yes, I agree with these facts, because he warns us in Matthew 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? These all look like very spiritual things. And he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There will be folks who even profess the name of Christ and appear to be doing ministry in His name, but notice they're doing the flashy ministry. But how are they handling the law of God? Are they loving their neighbor as themselves? Are they humble? Are they loving their enemies and praying for their enemies? Are they turning the other cheek? Are they generous? Are they merciful? And so I ask you to examine your life this morning. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've got a lot to think about. Today is the day of salvation. Who else are you going to trust? Yourself? Listen to the guy who died for you and came back from the dead. If you've already made a profession of faith in Christ, he says to us, how are you living your life? Do you live like you've trusted Christ? Or do you just profess with your mouth? Father God, thank you for this truth and help us, Holy Spirit, examine our lives and see where we truly stand. May everyone in this building trust in Christ as Lord and Savior and live accordingly And what a compelling testimony that will be to the rest of the world. Help our newly baptized brothers and sisters to walk in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.